The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Coming up on American POTUS, George Washington. Long before he became our first POTUS, young George was forging relationships, for better or for worse, with Native Americans on the Western frontier. As life would have it, it's these critical experiences that wound up serving him well over the next few decades. As general during the Revolutionary War, and as president during his eight years in office. How George Washington, major, general, and president, dealt with a delicate and difficult relationship involving our westward expansion and this country's Native Americans. It's on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. By sharing their challenges, their stories, and their personalities, we hope to add some clarity and perspective for today's heated political conversations. To help us learn more about our founding father's relationship with Native Americans is author and professor Colin Calloway. While teaching history and Native American studies at Dartmouth College, he's also authored several books on the history of Native Americans. One of those titles that we want to get into today is called The Indian World of George Washington, The First President, The First People, and The Birth of the Nation. It's a fascinating read, and we hope you get a copy. To make it easy for you to find, we'll have a link on our AmericanPOTUS.org website. Colin, welcome to American POTUS. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Colin, really enjoyed the Indian world of George Washington. I know Scott and I were at Mount Vernon. We were talking to Doug Bradburn there, and he highly recommended your book and getting you on the podcast. So I'm really glad you're able to join us today. Let's start with that young George Washington in the book and his role in the 1750s in the Ohio country. Why in the world was a, a young man, George Washington, quite young at that time, chosen to play such a huge role? in addressing the French incursions in the Ohio country. Yes, he really is thrust into it. And, of course, we have to remember that the Ohio country is this sort of vortex of competition between the English and the French. It's pivotal to their ambitions for North American dominance, but it's also Indian country. The people on the ground, the Native nations, are in large part of the peoples who are calling the shots. And Governor Dinwiddie needs somebody to go out there as as an emissary um, or as a messenger boy, depending upon how how you construct that. And there actually aren't that many choices. And George Washington, as a young man, had had some experience as a a surveyor uh, in that direction. But he was also uh, willing to do it. And so he became the the person he sent out by the governor of Virginia. For what turns out, of course, to be, uh, it triggers a momentous series of events. And um not sure that was the uh, desire or the intention of either Dinwiddie or Washington. Really, the, the beginning of what was the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, as we call it. Absolutely, yeah which, of course, we now, I think, much better appreciate 
as such an influential event in the uh, unfolding chronology of the American history that we know so well, that is the revolution and and onwards. After those those initial missions, which I think the word disastrous is, is is the right word to use in those early Washington missions to the Ohio country. How how did he end up at the, in that viewing the Indians in, either as allies or as adversaries? What were his views on Indian cultures at that point? Yeah, that's a good, a good, great question. And and of course, it was um, despite the uh, writings of some um, of Washington's earlier biographers who who insist that he demonstrated the kind of capacities for leadership that would destine him for the presidency. It really is hard to see any of that out there. We have to remember how how old he was, 21, 22, whatever it was. And this is his first command. And basically everything goes about as badly as it could be. And I argue in the book that he's actually kind of maneuvered into this skirmish with the French by uh, the Seneca Hafken Tanarasan for his for his own reasons. Um, but you're right, everything goes badly. He finishes up surrendering to the French, etc. And I think what that does is that sharp learning curve gives him sort of ambivalent attitudes towards Native peoples on the one hand, as he'd seen everything spin out of control in this kind of mini-orgy of violence. Uh, he had to have been horrified, and that would have, um, that did reinforce some of his attitudes about Native people. But he also, I think, realizes that fighting in Indian country requires Indian, Indian allies. And that's something that informs his thinking, um, later on and becomes uh, very, very much a, a part of his strategy. How he felt about Native American cultures is a more, I find it a, a more difficult question because Washington, unlike some of his contemporaries, doesn't write a lot about Native cultures. He doesn't display any particular interest in them. He's very interested in Native land. He's very interested in what Native people are doing politically as potential enemies or allies. But there's very little in his reading and his writings to get a sense of how he's viewing Native cultures, which means we're kind of left to, to assume that he probably viewed them much as other people of his time and place and, and status viewed viewed Native Americans. Um, and that is, of course, people at a, uh, a more primitive level of development, if not, as he says in some of his writings, uh, savages. Um, so he, there's this sort of ambiguous uh, relationship there, but I think you're right. This, this had to have had a, a searing impression on him. Now you mentioned his love of Indian land. Yeah, one, one theme that runs throughout your book is his desire to obtain property in the West. What was driving him to, to obtain that property? How much land did he amass and how did that passion then color his views on on the Indian tribes who were living there and you know, owning that owning that uh, that land to the west? Washington's will, I, as I remember, is about twenty nine pages long, <clears throat> and most of that is 
leaving kind of instructions, talking about different plots of land that he he owns. And the total at the time of his death is, is about 45,000 acres. Um, and he's had more than that because he's been buying and selling and um, that kind of thing. And we have to remember, I think, that for an 18th century Virginian, um, other colonies too, land was the business of 18th century America. That's how you you made money. That's how you got ahead. And of course, for Washington, um, getting ahead, moving up the the ladder of Virginia society was was huge, and land was the way to do that. So I, I actually believe that this is it's central to his thinking through his life. How land, Western land, he calls it, I call it Indian land, um, can build his own fortunes and future, how Western land can build Virginians' fortunes and future, and then, as president, how Western land can build the nation's fortunes and future. And I think this, I think he always looks at land with a surveyor's eye, and I think this is what dominates his thinking and his relationships with Native peoples. Maybe obsession is too much, but I think even in a society and at a time where land speculating, land investment, building fortunes in land was um, was central to people's thinking in the, in the society, Washington even then has a reputation for being somebody who's um, driven by this. And of course, if you have that view, that affects, influences, and colors your views of Native people because Native peoples are on the land that you are coveting. And so really you cannot realize your future's fortunes, ambitions in that regard uh, without in some way removing them from that land. And that's going to be, um, Washington's going to deal with that, not only personally, but of course, as the father of a country that is going to expand and develop on Indian land. So before that point in, in the 60s, 1760s and 70s, the British imposed kind of contradictory policies regarding settlement of the West of the Indian lands. What was behind those actions by the British and how did Washington respond to those? Yeah, of course, the British government, British imperial government, colonial government, is making grants to colonies and to um, governors and to individuals as a sort of tiered arrangement where this all works. But, of course, this is this is building colonies and expanding settlement uh, onto Western lands. And, of course, what that does is generate tensions and ultimately conflicts with, with Native peoples. And there's a huge uh, explosion in the Ohio Valley Great Lakes region right at the end of the French and Indian War in this uh, conflict that we call Pontiac's War. I like to call it the first uh, American, first war of independence because the Native nations in that war do what the American colonists do a dozen years later. They take on the British Empire. And they take it on with some gusto. 
the British response, and it's often a, an ambivalent response, is to look to the frontier and say, okay, well, who's responsible? And to some extent, they blame the people that they've encouraged to be out there on the frontier. And in, uh, they do two things. One is they realize they need to keep um, the military, keep an army in North America uh, to protect American colonists against such such wars. And somebody has to pay for that. And the British have been taxed to the hilt during the French and Indian War. So it seems entirely reasonable that American colonists should be taxed um, to pay for this. And we all know where that went. The other thing they do is to they issue the, the government issues a royal proclamation. And what that does is essentially establish an imaginary line down the crest of the Appalachian Mountains and saying that west of that line is still British territory because the British have obtained all of that territory from the French as a result of their victory in the uh, French and Indian War. That's all still British territory, but it will be set aside as an Indian reserve. So British citizens, British colonists, British subjects, whatever you want to call them, remain east of the mountains, and Indian land west of the mountains remain intact, at least for the moment. It's not ever regarded as permanent. But the idea is that as colonial expansion occurs and Indian lands are acquired, that process will be carried out by the, the Crown's duly appointed agents and representatives, not by maverick land speculators and um, individuals buying, wheeling and dealing in Indian land. And they will do that by dealing with the tribes in open treaty and in that way, expansion, hopefully, will pursue an orderly course with minimal bloodshed. Well, of course, that uh, put the cat among pigeons. First of all, many of the people who have contributed to these tensions by settling or squatting on Indian land ignore it. But it also serves to alienate many people who've been investing, speculating in and buying land west of the mountains in anticipation of the defeat of the French and their Indian allies when settlers, colonists will sweep over the mountains and they can then sell or, hire or rent them land and make a fortune. Now the British government essentially closes the door on that and alienates the people who've been making those investments, doing that speculation thing. And who does that include? Well, George Washington, of course, and other people, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, because this is the business of, of America uh, at the time. Um, and so Washington, when he hears this, of course, I think it's, it's a major blow to him because Washington had fought and sacrificed, risked his life fighting for the British Empire as a British subject in the French and Indian War. And now it seems as if the fruit of victory that he and men like him have earned by their, by their blood and sacrifices 
was being denied. And he basically, you know, said, this isn't going to last. We, you know, we've got to um, keep speculating because eventually this is going to fall away. But it's a major event, I think, a major policy measure that I think significantly and perhaps uh, irretrievably alienates him from the British Empire and sets him on a new course thinking about um, ultimately independence from that empire. I, I so agree with you. I think that proclamation sometimes is a bit overlooked as you look at those root causes, but it was so fun important to Washington so many years. It's just fascinating looking at those pre-revolution days, but we know that war comes uh, and Washington is in the, the American troops. What were his views then during the revolution on enlisting Indian allies uh, as troops uh, uh, fighting the British? Uh, and that's where that ambivalence that you asked about early on, I think, comes in again. And it's not just Washington's ambivalence, because throughout the 18th century and throughout the French and Indian Wars, plural, English colonies, particularly in New England, had, had suffered from the raids carried out by Indian allies of the French. And so there is this legacy, this story of how Indians wage war and how they are, for the most part, um, allies of, of the enemy. They're on the, on the wrong side. When the revolution occurs, of course, there's a whole question of what will the, what will Indian people do? Whose side will they take? And what will the British and what will the American policy toward Native allies be? And the British debate this too, because there is this uh, idea that Indian warfare is, is particularly vicious and brutal and not what civilized armies should be engaging in. And so there's a, there's a moral question as well as a strategic question there that everybody wrestles with. And most Native people, of course, um, finish up siding with the British, but not all of them. There are others who uh, align with the Americans. There are others who almost without much um, recruiting side with the Americans and Native people from Stockbridge, Massachusetts, Native people from what is Northern Maine and Nova Scotia, um, many of these people side with the Americans. And there's a, there's a back and forth between Washington and the Continental Congress about what should we do? Shall we do this? Shall we not do this? But it essentially, eventually, they decide, well, um, we will do this. Because I think the attitude is always, and the British have this attitude too, or they have this justification too, the belief that Indian warriors will fight on one side or the other. And so if you don't have them fighting for you, you will find yourself fighting against them. Now that actually runs against the, I think, reality for many Native nations and communities who desperately want to stay out of this war and see it as a domestic quarrel and nobody wants to get in the middle of that. Um, so I think there's a lot of ambivalence on all sides uh, about um, who's going to fight, who's going to fight for whom, and do who do we want to be fighting alongside. And I think when Indian peoples, the majority of Indian people, 
side with the British is not because they have any particular love of the British, but they look at the British record on Indian policy and see Proclamation of 1763 at least as an attempt to protect Indian land. And then they see American colonists who seem to be hell-bent on just taking Indian land. And I, I often say that the war of independence is a war for independence, but it's also a war about Indian land and who gets it and who has access to it. And Indian people, I think, recognize that. I know one Indian tribe during the revolution that Washington fought a, authorized a very deadly campaign against was the Iroquois tribe. Why, why did he consider that necessary and what were the results of that campaign? So the Iroquois or the Haudenosaunee um, were a dominant power in 18th century America, certainly in the period leading up to French and Indian War. It's a, it's a league of, of, of six tribes, Mohawks, Oneidas, Onondagas, Cayugas, Senecas, and Tuscaroras. And they'd managed to maintain their dominance, not so much through war in the 18th century, but through diplomacy by playing off rival powers, playing off the French against the English and uh, and so on. They, the revolution splits that league and makes that policy no longer feasible. For the first time, really, the, the, the tribes of the uh, league decide, you know what, we have to go our separate ways. Tuscaroras and Oneidas tend to side with the Americans. Mohawks, Senecas, and the others uh, predominantly side with the British. And that means uh, that's bad news for people living on the backcountry of New York, Pennsylvania in particular, where native raids, uh, Iroquois raids, supported, instigated by, and sometimes in, com- in collaboration, conjunction with the British, uh, are devastating. So at a time when Washington and the Continental Army are fighting British troops in the East, they are conscious, he, Washington is conscious of this threat in the West, which is draining manpower, resources, and energy. And in 1779, he dispatches an expedition into Iroquois country, the main thrust of which is commanded by General John Sullivan of New Hampshire. And his instructions to Sullivan and his insistence to Sullivan throughout the course of the expedition is basically, this is a scorched earth campaign. Burn them out. Destroy Iroquois villages. Destroy Iroquois cornfields. Cut down Iroquois orchards. And Washington doesn't invent this strategy. This is the... These are the tactics that colonial armies use to defeat Indian people. Not to go tromping through the woods looking to engage Indian warriors in battle. When General Braddock did that, that was a disaster. The effective way to defeat Indians was to defeat, was to destroy their homes and their food supplies. That meant burning their villages, burning their crops, destroying their, their, their stores. hundred years later, out on the plain, the American strategies do the same thing, but there you're destroying buffalo herds, not destroying crops. Sullivan carries out his orders to the letter. He says he burns 40 
Iroquois towns, destroys 160,000 bushels of corn. The army stopped for days at a time sometimes, just cutting down orchards. The idea is, of course, that this will stamp out the Iroquois raid. Washington had argued that strategy during the French and Indian War when he was in the hopeless situation of trying to defend the Virginia frontier or the people on the Virginia frontier from Indian attacks coming out of the Ohio country. And, of course, Indian War Party simply filtered around his outposts and his troops and uh, caused all kind of damage. Washington said the only way you can stop the attacks is to stamp them out at source, to go into Indian country and attack the villages. And that's what they do here. It's it's questionable whether it works or not. The Iroquois are thrown back on the British at Fort Niagara, where they endure a miserable winter of hunger, starvation, exposure, disease. But then come spring, they need they resume their raids on the American frontier because they've got hungry families to feed. And another way of looking at it is Iroquois country and the American officers on this campaign talk about this in their journal. It's incredibly rich and fertile country. This is Finger Lakes territory. So Americans on those expeditions have this territory in, in mind for occupation after the war is over. And I think at this, even at this stage in the revolution where Washington's where the cause is under threat, Washington is already thinking to the future by sending military expeditions out of this country. We're establishing a claim to this country, and this country will one day one day be be American. I thought it was fascinating you say to that to that point that after the revolution that land became not only a source of revenue and a room for growth for the new country, but also you say contributed to the formation of a shared national identity. Yeah. And I, I think that's, I mean, I, I think this is, in, and I'm choosing my words carefully here, being a British person living in the United States, but I think that very early on, there is a notion of America, the United States, being a country on the move. It's still there. And watch, you know, if I turn on the weather, somebody's talking about the weather out west or back east. And that's ingrained in the way in our thinking that this was a country that developed east to west. And certainly Washington, I know, understood that once the states had won their independence, they had to make themselves into an into a nation. And that was no easy task and no foregone conclusion. But that for the nation to prosper and have a future it needed to expand westward, that if it was hemmed east of the Appalachians, um, it might very well shrivel and die. Um, And so what Washington and others identify as, I think, an American national project becomes a way of uniting the people who are carrying out that project uh, in different ways and at different levels. But it gives, I think, people in diverse areas of the country with diverse experiences something that that unites them because many of them are not Americans. I mean, I'm 
I'm just now writing, writing a book on the Scotch-Irish, which I'm doing because I got annoyed at the number of times I read people being described as English colonists, English settlers, or, or just white. And very often I'm looking at areas where the, the colonists and the settlers are Irish, Scotch-Irish, German, Scots, Welsh. Um, about the only thing they have in common is the fact that they're not English. Um, but somehow, you know, those people have to be brought just as Washington and the uh, Federalists are trying to pull the different states together as a nation. There has to be something that helps generate an, a, a national identity for all of these different individuals. Um, and certainly many of these people in the back country are participants in this larger national project of again, building a nation on Indian land. Well, as someone of uh, Irish heritage, at least in part, I thank you for that effort, for that point. Uh, <laughs> uh, also, uh, this this growing of a, of a national identity you're talking about, also the the need to expand West and to cement our, our land in the West, that was part of Washington's concerns in wanting a stronger central government too. Is that is that correct? Yes, because... What you couldn't have, and the British had seen this, what you couldn't have was piecemeal, haphazard expansion with different groups of people uh, trespassing on, on native land, making any kind of central coherent Indian policy an impossibility, if not a nightmare. So when Washington thinks of expansion onto Indian land and building a nation on it, on, on Indian land, he, he views this as something that needs to be done under the auspices of the federal government. Because this should be a national project and not a mad scramble among competing states and competing interests within the states. And so, um, and you see this, and this is, of course, Washington's not the architect of this, but Washington believes in this. You see this in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which is kind of the last uh, measure passed by the Continental Congress, where they're, they're looking at the Northwest Territory, which is kind of everything beyond the Ohio River and contains the present-day states, Ohio, Michigan, um, you know, parts of Illinois, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Minnesota, et cetera, et cetera. And these, that's the area that the northern states have ceded to the federal government. South of the Ohio, Virginia, North Carolina, particularly Georgia, they hold on to their claims to western lands later. So this is the area where the United States, the federal government, can try out its land policy. What will we do? But it's also the area where it establishes the what will become its territorial system, how Americans move west and open up new lands. Will we prevent them doing what we did? In other words, as we we build a new society, as we grow up and mature, then we just leave home. And that was how some of the revolutionary generation explained and justified their separation from England. It wasn't radical. It was natural. That was the mother country. We were no longer children. So we 
left home and founded a new nation. Well, you don't want people doing that in Wisconsin. So how do you prevent that? And I think the Northwest audience is, is a masterstroke because it basically says American territories will not be colonies like as in the British Empire. That is, they will not be permanently second class. Those uh, areas will go through a territorial phase, but once they reach 60,000 people, they will petition the federal government to be admitted to the union on the same footing as all of the other states. And that's you know, basically how it works for, for most states. And the territories will be, the land within the territories will be uh, surveyed, they will be measured, they will be divided into town lots and, you know, you know, you fly over most of America, certainly middle America, and you look down and you can see how it works. It's all rectangles and squares. Um, doesn't look anything like flying over England, which looks like chaos. Um, so this was Washington's idea that there would be expansion, but it would be orderly. And ironically, perhaps, or hypocritically, depending on one's point of view, Washington finds himself, therefore, in much the same position that the British government was in 1763. Because in 1790, Congress passes the Indian Trade and Intercourse Act, and one of the provisions of that act is that any land transfers from Native peoples has to be approved by Congress. In other words, the federal government wants to control this process, which is essentially what the British government was saying in 1763, and, and Washington had a fit. Now he's in he, now he's in the hot seat, and he sees that you know this is kind of how it has to work. But it's always a source of tension because he inherits those same tensions that the British imperial government has. How do you encourage people to move west? and grade up against native land, but at the same time, restrict them, regulate what they can, what they do uh, to try and prevent them from sparking Indian wars that the federal government will then have to, have to fight. And of course, it leaves them open to charges of hypocrisy. You, you um, in addition to that um, measure, you talk about the other basics of President Washington's policies toward the Indians put together uh, with Henry Knox. Some of those policies mm -hmm. you talk are policies of expansion, but he also, they tried to leaven them with humanitarianism in some way. So how did he believe at least you could combine those policies of essentially expanding onto taking Indian lands with uh, some level of humanitarianism toward the Indians? Yeah, because the Northwest Ordinance stipulates it's a blueprint for expansion. We're going to Establish territory after territory, which will become state after state after state. And of course, that means that we're going to gobble up native homelands, indigenous homelands. But at the same time, the Northwest Ordinance makes a pledge, and it's almost a pledge of national honor, that we will always deal fairly and justly with native people. Well, that's a very much a cake and have your cake and eat it too kind of situation. And, but the way that certainly Washington and Henry Knox was thinking about this is so how can we deal honorably and fairly with Indian peoples? 
we're not going to not want their land. We have to have that. That's a given. And the way to deal honorably with them is to do, again, essentially what the British did, and that is to acquire their land by treaties. Because treaties are the way to have respectful relations with Native people, to acquire land in return for payment of a fair price, or what we think is a fair price, and avoid those flashpoints that so often come from unregulated expansion onto Indian land. And of course, treaties by their definition are agreements between sovereign nations. And Washington acknowledges that when the Constitution basically says treaties will happen this way and they will go to the Senate to be ratified by a two-third vote of the Senate. Washington sends a message to the Senate and says that includes Indian treaties too. So in that sense, that he's, he's viewing Indian nations in the same way that he views European nations, the British or the French. Um, so that's an, a, a, an important dimension that Washington and Knox strive for. And I actually do believe that they strive for this honestly, uh, perhaps limited by their... A predetermined notion of what's what's going to happen, um, but that's kind of plan A. If we do this, we can satisfy both of the, those requirements: acquiring land and expansion with honor. Right? The problem happen occurs when Indian people turn down your offer and say, "Well, thanks, but no thanks. We'd like to just keep our homelands, and we'd like you." to go away, uh, which is not going to happen. And then what tends to be the, that's when the United States and Washington and Knox say, well, we tried, and now we have to revert to uh, to armed force because you can't reason with these people. And that's, of course, what generates the invasion of the Ohio country and um, Arthur Sinclair's uh, campaign into um against the uh, villages in the Ohio campaign, which is almost like a mirror image of, of Braddock, the destruction of Braddock's army in 1755. The whole army is obliterated, and it's the only army the United States has. But there's another dimension to this, um, what you call a humanitarian aspect, and that is something that Washington and Knox spend a lot of time writing about, talking about, and be, which becomes a, a key component of American policy, and that is what, what becomes known as the civilization pro, uh, policy. That Native people are um, will benefit from our civilization, which if you're early 19th or late 18th century American, that means sedentary plow agriculture carried out by men, not by women, because Native women have been, you know, producing crops for, you know, hundreds of years. And Christianity and living a settled life and all of those kinds of things. The two things become coupled because one of the problems with an Indian way of life that depends upon hunting, which was not the case because it's a mixed economy, but that's how Washington and Jefferson and these guys view it. 
hunting takes an awful lot of territory. You have to have an, an awful lot of land as hunting territory. Farming is much more focused and efficient. You can feed yourself and your family on a much smaller amount of land if you're if you're farming. And so if you can convince Indian people to give up huge amounts of territory, it will actually benefit them because they will now have no choice but to concentrate their efforts on becoming farmers. And by being settled sedentary farmers, they will have now a chance to survive in this new nation alongside American farmers. And so that policy of civilization kind of becomes almost a justification as well as um, something of, of benevolence, uh, of benefit to, to Native people. It also becomes a way of getting that land. But the idea that <clears throat> what will Native people get out of American expansion, which gobbles up their land, well, in exchange they'll get civilization, is something that informs United States Indian policy and American expansion well through the, the 20th century. And I'm not saying that Washington's in, in entirely responsible for it, but it certainly, it certainly begins uh, with Washington and Knox thing, trying to think a way through, through this kind of, it's almost a Gordian knot of uh, conflicting obligations um, that, they, that they're facing. You note uh, that diplomacy that Washington and Knox undertook to establish those treaties went forward at you call a frenetic pace. And I'm just curious in, in terms of his personal involvement, how personally involved was, was President Washington in those negotiations with the various tribes? Yeah. And of course, so Washington as president <clears throat> has to sign or um, kind of proclaim the treaties that are made. He's sending out agents and commissioners to to do these to make these treaties. And if if treaties are the instruments of expansion, then yeah, there's going to be uh, a lot of them. But Washington um, Washington is also heavily involved in indigenous diplomacy at the seat of government, where Indian native delegations travel to. Um, well, New York, first of all, but then to Philadelphia, sometimes to make treaties, but also just to have talks with the president. And this is particularly the case in Washington's first term, where native delegations, uh, there's a huge Creek delegation, a hugely important Creek delegation comes to New York when New York is the capital to make the treaty of uh, 1790, which is actually the first treaty the United States makes after the the Constitution is adopted. Um, there's, there's a slew of Native delegations go to Philadelphia and they meet with Washington in his official residence. Um, there's one week, and I think it's, the, it's in November 17, 
1996, where Washington had dinner at his official mansion with four different Indian delegations on four different days of the week. And I think that's uh, significant. He's not doing that because he likes having Native Americans over for dinner. He's doing that because it's a reminder to us, I, th I think I say in the book, maybe early on in the book, that we've forgotten what George Washington knew. And George Washington knew that Indian nations, even as late as 1790, even after the bombardment of disease and colonialism and the wars and the revolution, were still a major power on the American continent. And that any society or any nation that was had ambitions had to deal with Native people. And you're better dealing with them as allies than as enemies. So some of those delegations to Philadelphia are going there at Washington's request because he's trying to keep them, Senecas, for instance, out of, away from joining the Ohio Confederacy that is giving Americans a bloody nose in the Ohio country. Um, and there's a steady stream of these delegations to the extent that at some point, sometimes they even bump into each other. Um, there's one embarrassing moment in Peel's museum because, well, what are you going to do with delegates when they're in town and they're not meeting with the government? Well, you, you show them the sites, so they take them to, among other cases, um, places, Peel's museum. Uh, and there's a, a delegation of Native people from the Ohio country sort of literally bump in to a delegation of people from the uh, from the South which includes Chickasaws who fought with the Americans against the Ohio uh, nations. So um, this is a sort of complicated landscape, and a lot of these issues are being uh, Washington's trying to talk them out at Philadelphia. And I, I actually think using that as an opportunity to buy the United States time, because when they... When it, when it lost its army in 1791, then it was in a difficult situation. This new nation that was so vitally important to Washington was essentially, for, for a moment, defenseless. Not just against native people, but the Brits are up to no good in the north, the Spaniards are a threat in the south, and he has to, the United States has to rebuild the army, which it does, um, and demonstrate to Indian people and to the world that it actually now can safeguard its own borders and demand, command respect um, in, it, in its foreign policy. Um, and so he recognizes that Indian people are not just a presence on the continent, that Native nations are a power on the continent. Is something the United States still has to deal with. And I think when we're looking back over this, we know so well how the story ends that it's easy to think that Native people were, Native nations were just easily swept aside. And that wasn't the case because when Washington looked out across North America, his vision was, yeah, this will be American, at least in Mississippi. But it wasn't the only vision. This could have been a continent shared with Spain, with Britain, and with 
multiple native nations or even with multiple native uh, confederations that would match the American confederation. So one part of that story you've mentioned is the, the defeat in and what was then the Northwest. Can, can you finish that story for us under the Washington administration of how that defeat has finally turned into a victory uh, there in, in the, uh, the old Northwest? Yeah. In seven, November 4th, 1791, Little Turtle of the Miamis, Blue Jacket of the Shawnees, Bukongahela of the Delawares, and their warriors basically obliterate the American army led by Arthur St. Clair. And that, you know, Thomas Jefferson says, when that happens, when the news arrived in Philadelphia, nobody was talking about anything else. So the United States has to scramble. Well, one of the things they do immediately is set up the first Congressional Investigating Committee to see how this happens, um, which initiates things like, okay, well, we need all the documents from the president's office, initiating what we now come to know as executive privilege. All, there's a whole slew of things happen from it. But one of the things that happens from it is that I think military historians <clears throat> accept is the foundations of the modern American army. We couldn't fight a war, a national war, with the kind of army that we send out to the Ohio. Heavily militia, uh, you know, short-term enlistments, poorly trained, etc., etc. And the time that Washington is able to buy General Anthony Wayne, Wayne builds in a new army that it's called, he calls it the American Legion, but it's also funded differently. It's now funded uh, by Congress. This is a national enterprise. And when that army is ready to go, it is a different fighting force from what had gone into New Indian country three years, three years earlier. And at the Battle of Fallen Timbers in August, August 20th, 1794, uh, Wayne is able to defeat that Ohio Confederacy. And the following year, uh, negotiates a, a treaty with those nations and with this sort of galaxy of native leaders, many of whom had been fighting against American expansion since before the revolution. And they basically cede about two-thirds of what is now Ohio. And this is a, a sort of major uh, advance of um, American power and, of course, American uh, occupation of that territory. But those were, I think it's a reminder to us, a reminder to us today when perhaps many of us feel that the republic is precarious. Uh, that in the first half of the 1790s, the Republic was extremely precarious. It was not a dead certainty that the United States, I think, was going to emerge out of that, certainly not in the way that it did. And many of the question marks raised over that future were raised by um, Indian nations because they had skin in the game, if, if that's the right phrase, because, and I use that term, nations deliberately. What do nations have? Well, they all have foreign policies. So how did native nations, indigenous nations view this continent? How did they foresee things unfolding? And what policies were they going to adopt to this new and growing power that became the, the United States? Um, so I, I, 
I like to think of this and get my students to think of this not as a story dictated by the United States in which Native people are all just shunted west on, on the western frontier, but rather more of a kaleidoscope in which there's multiple nations kind of jostling for position and working out their destinies in the same way that the United States is. That's a fascinating, important topic. I just want to wonder, after Washington died, uh, this was such a long and complicated history he had with Indian tribes. How did the Indians view him, the legacy of Washington after he passed away? That's an intriguing question, and I've never been able to answer it with certainty. There are um, giving and taking names in in Native societies was an an important uh, thing. And there are a lot, quite a lot of Native people with the name Washington or George Washington. It's, it's a, a kind of a sign of respect and other things. So there's that piece to it. Native people after Washington's death often invoke his memory in their dealings with the American government and say, you know, the great father George Washington did this and this or treated us fairly etc. I'm su- sufficiently skeptical to say and su- sufficiently um, respectful of Native political savvy to see it as that. These guys know what they're doing. Right? Washington, the founder of the Republic, the cement that held the revolution together, the father of the nation is now gone. <clears throat> but we're going to invoke his memory on our side uh, to bolster our cause. But I think it's also very much the case that in subsequent dealings with the United States government, Native people looking back to the era of George Washington might have been inclined to see it as something of a golden age. Because for all of his failings, for all of his greed for Indian land, and for all of, you know, invading Indian country, not once, but several times. Washington did establish a record, and I do believe that he made an effort to do the right thing for Indian people, given the constraints of the world as he saw it and the ambitions that he had for himself and his his country. So I think that Native people looking back to Washington's presidency from, well, for instance, the presidency of Andrew Jackson, might well have thought Washington was uh, a golden, you know, the golden father figure because what Jeff Jackson didn't have any of those qualms about taking Indian land and about what should happen to Indian people. And the other thing, and I end the, the, my book on this, is that John Ross was principal chief of the Cherokees at the time of Indian removal, which is a horrendous, horrific experience for Cherokee people and 80,000 other Native people. But the Cherokees at the end of Washington's administration had been kind of his poster people, if that's not too strong a term, for his civilization policy. He had said to the Cherokees, your your power is dwindling, your land is dwindling, the world is changing. <clears throat> and in order to have a chance of survival, you've got to adopt American ways of life. That's 
mercantile edu- uh, agriculture, education, uh, settled living patterns, Christianity, etc., etc. And the Cherokees, as one of those so-called civilized tribes, as the Americans uh, dubbed them, did that right? to a remarkable extent. They had their own newspaper, they had their own <clears throat> written language, they had their own constitution modeled on the constitution of the United States, and a fat lot of good it did them because they were removed under the Indian Removal Act, uh, under Jackson's policies, uh, which basically said Indians can't change, they're always going to be savages, and there's no place for them here. Um, that, In that sense, the Indian Removal Act and the Cherokee Trail of Tears must, I think, to John, John Ross, have seemed like... Uh, a huge betrayal of George Washington's promise, right? If you live like us, you can live alongside us. Um, and yet John Ross calls one of his children George Washington. Um, so I think that gives us some sort of insight into, uh, like anybody's reputation, um, how Washington is viewed in, in Indian country, probably like other presidents in the United States, that can depend on different eras, different times, how we look back to these people and and, and see their legacy in, in different ways. I think I think part of that goes back to the question we had earlier about sovereignty. It's fascinating to think of as as Washington looked at that possible solution moving forward with the, the Indian tribes of how sustainable it would have been have a whole series of those with sovereign nations or sovereign confederacies in the bounds of called the United States. And, and that's an interesting question of how he would have seen that actually being sustainable long-term because obviously it ended up not being sustainable long-term in the East and, and or anywhere. Um, obviously we have those nations today, uh, but, but it's, how does a sovereign nation have a have a series of sovereign nations within it? And um, yeah. fascinating if I could talk to George Washington right now to see what he would say of how that would work. Well, and I think when Washington, Washington's view, I think part of Washington's thinking was, I mean, I think one of the questions that the United States faces when it begins its life as a nation is, what do we do with Native Americans? You know. Um, they kind of fought on, most of them fought on the wrong side during the revolution. Can there be a place for them in this new United States? Now, the Indian Removal Act answered that, said no. We're going to deport them, it's ethnic cleansing. But I think Washington believes that if Native people would accept, adopt his civilization program, they could, there, there was a place for them. But I don't think he ever thought or wanted there to be a place for them as sovereign, intact, in indigenous nations with a, with a secure tribal land base. I think his view was that Native people would become, they would become Ameri- individual American property owners who happened to be of, uh, of Native American heritage. And that, of course, was the, um, 
a goal for successive administrations, you know, right through the, you know, the 1950s, the termination era and the allotment era and all of those kinds of things. But where are we today, right? We've got uh, a constitutional democracy with 574 indigenous nations, Alaskan villages, as part of that, that are recognized as, as sovereign nations. And what does that sovereignty look like and how does that um how do the relationships between the federal government and the states and those multiple indigenous sovereign nations work and it's an incredibly complicated uh question um and <clears throat> i'm not sure that i'm not sure that was on washington's horizon um I think he was thinking more that there will be a place for native people and eventually they will be kind of swallowed up. So more more thought of assimilation, essentially. Yeah, I think so. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. We'd like to thank author Colin Calloway for joining us on this episode about George Washington. More information about his terrific book can easily be found on AmericanPOTUS.org. And we would like to thank all of you that have made a tax-deductible financial contribution to support this podcast. In addition to this show, your generosity helps us develop new groundbreaking podcast shows and revolutionary outreach programs, offering clarity and perspective to today's political conversations. If you'd like to contribute, it's easy. Simply visit AmericanPOTUS.org. We appreciate your help. American POTUS is produced by American History Studios, graphic design by Proudler Design, and original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from George Washington, quote, Happiness depends more upon the internal flame of a person's mind than on the externals in the world.